1: Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi. Well, I love this story. And if you're somebody that when you break up with someone, you move on and never look back, well, you might think about that in a different way after we take you inside the Museum of Broken Relationships. Yes, this is actually a thing. It was created by two people who had been in a relationship in Croatia. They divided their belongings after the relationship ended. This happened more than 20 years ago. Ago, but this museum has turned into quite the thing, both in person and online. Joining us now is Olinka Vishtitsa, owner of one of the owners of the Museum of Broken Relationships. Olinka, thank you so much for taking some time today. I can hear oh, you. there you are. Hello. Excellent. Can you hear me? Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Th- thank you so much uh, for being with us. I understand we also have Drajan Grubaschnitsch on the line as well. Can you hear me? Yeah. Excellent. Great. I'm here. Uh, thank you so both so much for doing this. Uh, so I just did a, a bit of a background on the museum. Uh, Olinka, maybe we can start with you. And can you describe the museum and a little bit more about how this came to be?
2: Uh, Well, we were a couple, like (laughs) an ordinary couple, and our relationship, I think, ran out of fuel, and we spent a lot of nights thinking about... Uh, the emotions, the memories, everything that is left that is now going to be forgotten forever. And however, we had so many beautiful moments that we lived together. So out of these broodings and I think also sadness, there was this idea to create something that could keep these emotions alive and these memories alive and as we were surrounded by the objects especially one uh, wind-up toy a plushy bunny that belonged to none of us but was something that we both were attached to it was kind of a pet we never had we thought maybe this Joy can keep the memories alive, and then we imagined the space Museum of broken relationships that phrase uh, came to to our minds immediately that could be an archive where anyone in the world could send an object anonymously connected with the story of a broken relationship uh, to a safe space where it can be put on view, where it can continue its life. And share its story with many other people, <laughs> some of them also broken-hearted around the around the world. So it started as a small art installation during uh, an art show in Zagreb, but immediately caught up the attention of the international audience, and that was something we did not expect. And uh, definitely we did not expect that 20 years after we would be doing this project, which is fantastic. Well, and just how it's
1: grown and the number of objects and stories is just amazing. Uh, Drajan, can you talk a little bit about the the impact the museum's had on you and what it's been like to be part of this?
3: Well, it's been an amazing journey, I must say, uh, because usually when you do an art project, you you kind of, you have an idea, and you do it, and there's the opening, and then, like, after a couple of months, it's gone, and you do something else, and um, I'm always joking, I'm saying that the museum is living its own life, and we're just following it behind, sort of. Um, because, you know, there's often a question, like, so did you expect this? Like, no, we absolutely (laughs) didn't expect. We had 63 traveling exhibitions so far. We've been to all five corners of the world. Um, So yeah, it was pretty amazing.
1: And uh, Olenka, I'll go back to you as well. And I was looking uh, on the website and you mentioned the the plush bunny. I mean, there's everything from a a stiletto shoe, a wristwatch, an axe, so many stories. Which ones kind of stick out to you or which ones stay with you?
2: There are so many that stay with you. Some because they are so sad and they touch you really deeply or some of them are really funny and uh, hilarious and I think one of the not only mine but also uh, an object that visitors like so much and it is kind of a testimony to our um, cynical rage that kind of uh, touches us after the relationship that's a toaster from Boulder and a woman who was left uh, she says, "Okay, when you left, when you left me, I picked the toaster because you like so much to toast your bread in the morning. How are you going to toast anything now? <laughs> I mean, obviously, she's going to buy a new toaster right. or." <laughs> Or there are some stories that stick to you because also sometimes we are present when people are leaving the the things to the museum so there is a you know this card uno game a, a box of cards that was given by a man who did who visited the museum and after the the tour he came to to the welcome desk and said i think this This game of UNO has found its resting place here and it turned out it was a testimony to a relationship between a U.S. soldier and Australian nurse who were together in Afghanistan and he was promised that the, the relationship will continue and he would come to Australia, but that never happened. So he bought the game of UNO Uh, traveled the world, and uh, eventually left his story at the museum.
1: Wow. And uh, we only have about a minute left. How can people, is it, uh, people would, I imagine, visit in person and also uh, the online site. How can people, if they wanted to submit something, how do they do that? Or where can they go to actually see things?
3: Well, it's uh, we, we try to make it as simple as possible. So on the front page on our website, there's a, a link, and you just click on it, and it leads you further to the process of donating the object. Uh, you just write your story. That's the most important part of the, the museum, because actually we're not the museum where the objects are so important, but it's more of a story behind it. And you print it out, you send it by post, or you bring it to Croatia, or any way you like. And especially if there are traveling exhibitions, we've been to Whitehorse, we've been to Mm -hmm. Toronto. So if there are traveling exhibitions, then you can donate locally.
1: All right. Well, thank you both of you so much for joining us today. Thanks. Thank you so much. All right. It was a pleasure.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: We know minimum wage in this province is officially going up on Thursday. It will reach $16.75 per hour, almost the highest in the country. I think Yukon is slightly higher than B.C.'s. But how are businesses preparing for this and dealing with this as well as some of the other added costs? Well, Annie Dormuth joins us now, Provincial Affairs Director with the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Annie, great to have you back on the show. Oh, always great to talk to you, Jill. Let's start with minimum wage and with the shift and how it's now more geared to be tied with inflation. What response are you hearing or what are businesses saying about this?
4: Well, definitely what they're seeing and how they're feeling right now is that definitely this is another cost increase on top of many cost increases that they are facing right now, both from pretty much all levels of government, as well as some things that may not be in the government's complete control in the form of supply chain challenges and, of course, inflation um, and higher interest rates that are really kind of putting them in a difficult position, um, struggling to perhaps look at increasing their prices because this is a price-sensitive market, and they are recognizing what they are going through is similar to what all British Columbians are going through. So definitely um, it's going to be uh, tight for a lot of small businesses, but ultimately they're looking at the government going, where is some cost offsetting measures or where is some cost relief for their business?
1: And what do you think that cost relief could potentially look like?
4: Well definitely we continue to you know call on for an increase to the employer health tax threshold um you know out of the provinces that do have an EHT BC is really really well below of what some of the other exemption rates are including Ontario which is a million and Manitoba which is 2.2 million um and that can add some that much needed cost relief to businesses around $3000 in 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 some savings as well as looking at rebating some of uh, WorkSafe BC's uh, surplus as well. I mean, there's a lot of tools at the government's disposal right now that could really help businesses.
1: And when you talk about the employee health tax and with the exemption, so, so I'm sorry, remind me, what is BC's exemption compared to the, the couple that you just mentioned?
4: Uh, BC is currently at 500,000. Right. Uh, Ontario is at 1 million, Newfoundland at 2, and then Manitoba at 2.2, and they recently increased it. Manitoba recently increased it to Again, add some of that cost relief to businesses understanding that this is a very trying time uh, given the current economic challenges as well as post-pandemic economic recovery.
1: Right. And when we look at those numbers, they might seem like big numbers, but for 500000 I would imagine the company doesn't have to be that big before you meet that threshold.
4: Well, that's exactly it. Um, a lot of our members are, yeah, you know, around that five hundred, but there are a lot of other small businesses that are above that. Um, we estimate that, you know, this could provide around a $3,000 saving to a, to a business, for example, with uh, 10, uh, 10, 10 employees. So definitely looking at the smaller scope of things that this could apply to and really help with local businesses.
1: Does it also lead to kind of stunting business growth in that if you're close to that $500,000 threshold, where's the incentive to grow if it's just going to push you over that and then suddenly you're going to incur all of these new costs?
4: Well, that's definitely it. I mean, um, you know, con- considering, you know, when we look at our business barometer, which, you know, tracks kind of small business confidence in the economy and, and, and in uh, conditions in B.C., we consider, you know, we, we consider to see these kind of low confidence levels in B.C. compared to other parts of Canada. And that really is because of some of these added costs that, that they are incurring, uh, you know, on top of employer, you know, the employer health tax, uh, five employer paid sick days and new statutory holiday this year, as well as um, a quite a significant nearly 7% increase to the minimum wage. So, yeah, I I do think that businesses are kind of looking at, you know, business expansion, business growth, where whether or not to expand um, comes into play with some of these uh, government policy decisions. You mentioned the
1: paid sick days as well. And I think people will agree. Uh, We've learned that uh, going to work sick is not a good idea. And people are really encouraged to not do that. But uh, I was chatting with uh, the Restaurant and Food Services Association. And uh, the the representative for that group the other day was saying they are actually seeing in some scenarios workers who are taking their sick days and then leaving and going to find another job because there are so many jobs still right now. I, I know it's kind of anecdotal. But are you hearing that as well, that there's a higher turnover or that employees are doing that?
4: Um definitely, you know we we do consider we do hear those anecdotal kind of conversations on our front lines and through our business resource services, but it's important to know that you know other other territories and provinces that have implemented a large increase like this in payroll costs like employer paid sick days they have done so with some cost offsetting measures for example yukon uh, is is new to kind of the employer uh employer paid sick days, and uh, they're helping subsidize this for businesses. That was absent through this rollout, which is five. I mean, we went from zero employer-paid sick days to five quite suddenly in the province. Um, and it wasn't really backed up by any any cost offsetting measures or, or help to businesses uh, to afford this. Uh, similar with this minimum wage increase, when Manitoba announced its minimum wage increase to inflation, they did so with a wage subsidy to help small businesses as well. Um, So, you know, there's a lot of provinces that are making some similar decisions to BC, but they're doing so by recognizing business conditions and providing some cost relief and help to businesses.
1: So without that in BC, and uh, again, we've talked about this with the restaurant industry, but with other businesses as well, do you anticipate we're going to see those higher costs passed on and, and that's what consumers are going to be seeing?
4: Unfortunately, that's what we're hearing, Um, hearing, you know, news stories uh, this week as as some small businesses and businesses are are bracing for this. Some of them are ultimately going to have to increase those prices, unfortunately. But I think they're doing so, um, you know, with with sensitivity and uh, operating and going to be operating on some tight margins, which ultimately you know, impacts their ability to grow and expand and create jobs uh, in the province. Um, So with this increase, I I do anticipate that there may be some, of course, um, higher prices for, for consumers.
1: All right. So on that note, Annie, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Of course. Always great to talk to you.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Well, maybe you've had an exit interview in your past, but have you ever had a stay interview? Or if you had one right now, what would you tell your employer? Talking about one-on-one meetings, they are conducted by companies hoping to get feedback from employees and get a better idea on what they can do to retain those team members. Well, my next guest is Tara Vanderloo, Chief Experience Officer at Sensei Labs. Tara, thank you so much for being with us.
4: Thanks for having me.
1: I know your company or Sensei Labs has started doing this. So how did that all come about, this idea or the decision to to conduct these stay interviews?
4: Where it really came from was uh, when we all were reading about the great resignation in the news. And that was back in late 2021. And our CEO and and co-founder, Jay Goldman, uh, who is very, very much believes in transparency and openness, decided to really tackle it head on and really address what was going on in the market and uh, what we were all seeing and hearing about so that we created a, I guess you'd want to call it like an environment of openness where if you were looking for a job or being approached by recruiters, that let's have an open dialogue together about it and see maybe it's a role change we can figure out or maybe it's something we can do um, as an organization. So that's really where it started um, to set the foundation for that openness and uh, I guess to make sure that the conversation we wouldn't be perceived um, as a negative. You know, we we love our team and uh, they're quite brilliant. We want to keep everyone, so um, putting that in place, I think, just changed the dynamics. And that's really where it
1: began. Hmm. And so, does everybody get a stay interview, or is it something that somebody has to request?
4: It's something that uh, in the beginning we we did it more formally, and now we, as people leaders, we uh, conduct uh, weekly one on ones with our teens. So it's not a regimented schedule where we, we address that, but we make sure that, you know, within the course of conversations that, that we're asking the right questions and that we're asking um, about their happiness and why they stay and what makes them want to stay. And uh, we also do a quarterly happiness survey. So we ask questions specific to our values and do, do our team members feel that we Live up to them as an organization and you know what can make it better so there's a consistent um, mechanism to provide that open space, and it can either be uh, and it can be anonymous if someone's more comfortable with that, so we're really trying to create a, a safe place to have those conversations.
1: And so what happens if during one of these stay interviews, somebody says, actually, I'm not all that happy. Here's what's wrong. I've been approached by another employer. I'm thinking about leaving. What happens when something like
4: that is addressed? So when something like that is is happening, I think the first thing is to understand the why. So having a conversation about what is it is it? Is it the role type? Is it the compensation? Is it the schedule? And to really dive deep there. And, you know, there may be cases where we don't have a role that exists that that is maybe in an industry they're looking for. And and what we like to do if we can't get to a place where it makes sense is um, help and say, you know, what can we do to help you find this role that maybe we can't offer you right now? And what we've seen in the past is what we call boomerangs because we have alumni, a Sensei Labs alumni, um, where we have had people go, you know, go and learn something new and, and come back and bring those skills to us. And I think that's a real testament to, to what we've been able to achieve.
1: And do you find too that once you have the stay interview, or that things come out in the stay interview that maybe have been bothering employees, maybe bothering bosses too, that just for whatever reason haven't been addressed, and this is a place where that happens?
4: Yes, I think they do, and I think there's you know things that we've implemented and executed executed on, um, whether they be you know initiatives towards like work life balance, and um, we you know we recently implemented a four-day work week um, pilot to um, just really help the team feel that uh, blend, that work-life blend, and, and have some more free time for themselves. And, um, you know, it was just one of the things that came out of, you know, what we listen to and hear from our team and try to experiment with different things to move the needle on, um, you know, things they might feel are missing. And, you know, also making sure that we, you know, have um, you know, events in place for the team that they they're desiring to want to connect with each other, um, tools and technology and things of that nature.
1: And interesting. So that piloting the um, the four day work week. Was that something that came out of these types of interviews or employees saying, hey, we'd kind of like to try this and make see if we can make this work?
4: We have heard about it from uh, not just team members, but we've also had heard about it from some of our customer partners who'd experimented with it as well. And it seemed to resonate with the team. And we talked to them a lot about it in the beginning. And, you know, that as we've moved forward with it, we're consistently collecting feedback on how they feel it's going. And Um, you know, there's many that feel like it's been game changing in their lives in their personal lives and um, their well-being. And I think, you know, that's when we hear we can't execute everything everybody wants, of course, but if there's things we can do as a team and work together to achieve them, I think that's where we all win and end up working in a place that we all love. And do you find people tend to stay longer or you've got a lower staff turnover because of that? I think we do. I think it's improved our retention. And also what we're seeing is in our hiring motions, um, you know, it's seen as a, it's seen as a real advantage. And we've had candidates say like, wow, this is something they would love to to have as part of their new career. Um, and having that as part of our ways of working, I think, is both a retention driver and an attraction driver.
1: Tara Vanderloo, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for your time this morning. Of course. Anytime. Thank you.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: On the show yesterday, we were talking, hearing from Adrienne Carr, a Vancouver City Councillor with the Green Party, and her motion coming forward on Thursday that would look to ban natural gas use in new builds for cooking on for stoves and for fireplaces and uh, wanted to keep that conversation going so joining me now to talk more about the use of natural natural gas and Canada's role in that is Jason McLean professor of environmental law at the University of New Brunswick thank you so much for being with us
5: thanks for having me
1: well, we've been talking on the show a Vancouver City Councillor is bringing forward a motion to ban the use of natural gas when it comes to cooking and fireplaces in new builds in the city, trying to cut down on emissions and cut down on the reliance on natural gas. I'm curious that you're somebody who has written extensively about this. What are your thoughts on whether or not that is an effective measure?
5: Well, I mean, I guess effective is, is, the, is, the, is the key word in, in terms of you know, defining what that means. But there's, there's no doubt that we have to transition away as soon as possible from fossil fuel use. And so any kind of policy that encourages or, in this case, mandates uh, a shift in energy sources is, is going to be part of the solution. Now, it's true that, you know, this type of measure in and of itself you know, in the in the global uh, scope of greenhouse gas emissions isn't going to solve the problem. Uh, it isn't even going to account for a very large amount of emissions. But it is a move that um, is consistent with the overall policy direction that we have to move in.
1: Right. in that to kind of looking at the bigger picture. But but to. And and not that anybody would think taking this one step would would solve everything, but with an industry where Canada is exporting so much natural gas, it's not as though a move like this is going to have an impact on the amount of natural gas burnt. It's going to shift it. It's it's still going to be used. It's just going to be used elsewhere. Isn't this kind of uh, penalizing people or or telling people who enjoy cooking with natural gas or heating with natural gas uh, that, that you can't do it, but we're not really stopping it or cutting down the use of it elsewhere?
5: Right. Well, I mean, I I would understand that reaction and I think the the best way to respond to it is to, you know, encourage your listeners to not think about these types of policies in isolation. So, if it were the case that, you know, Vancouver were to go uh go ahead with this policy, but otherwise, you know, the province uh of British Columbia and the country remains firmly committed to supporting, um, you know, methane gas extraction and export, then I think folks in Vancouver would be right to say, hey, this seems kind of inconsistent and punitive. But rather, I think the better way of looking at it is this policy is a good policy, and it's the type of policy that we should be implementing in other sectors. In other words, uh, we should be looking at Um, phasing out as quickly as possible the extraction of methane gas and the exportation of of methane gas so you know just looking at it in isolation and then saying and right now you'd be right in saying hey it doesn't seem like there's a lot of action elsewhere I think that that's the wrong way to look at it the right way to look at it is this policy in Vancouver is the right way to go let's do it but let's also be taking that type of policy direction more consistently throughout the economy. That way it'll make sense.
1: Uh, just in Canada, or do you mean uh, more worldwide or, or elsewhere?
5: Well, it has to be, you know, that's the that's the whole rub of, of global climate change. Uh, no one jurisdiction can fit it, uh, can fix it on its own, but so it has to be a, a global effort. It has to be a coordinated effort. Let's not kid ourselves. That's why it's just that's why it's so complicated. That's why it's so complex. But, you know, the argument, uh, and, you know, I listened to your interview with the, uh, the the member of council who's who's proposing this, and she made a really excellent point that the longer that we go on finger-pointing around the world and talking about who sh- who's doing more, who should move first, who should move more aggressively, makes it more likely that we remain in the situation that we're in now which is no one's moving fast enough no one's moving aggressively enough
1: right and and i guess one of the 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 ideas there or one of the issues there too is if we look at it I think because in Canada we've often thought or we we look at our natural gas industry as part of our clean energy plan and if you look at it as on a global scale even look at what China's doing with electric vehicles leading the way in electric vehicle production and use but if those vehicles are being electrified by coal fired plants then it's not really doing what it's supposed to be doing and isn't there a role for Canada to play if it's natural gas that could be used instead
5: well you know that's a really interesting point but it's important to unpack uh, one thing and that is the, the, the premise of, of where you started that natural gas um, and you know that's that's an interesting term in and of itself um that, that it's actually part of a, of a clean energy program um, there just isn't any scientific basis for that I mean The gas that we're talking about is methane gas. Um, Methane emissions as a greenhouse gas emission are about a hundred times more heat trapping than carbon dioxide over a 30 year period. So the fact that we consider quote unquote natural gas or methane gas clean energy is just a categorical misnomer to begin with. And in fact, making it even worse still, Um, we don't do a great job of even accurately measuring our methane emissions. But, you know, the overall point is true, is that, you know, we do have to move away from coal and we do have to move away from um, oil, but we also have to move away from natural gas, and that means moving toward renewable sources of energy for electrification. So, you know, it's really interesting in a, in a lot of conversations that are happening now, um, you know, that happened maybe 20 years ago about the phrase global warming. Uh, that used to be quite a prominent phrase. And, and over time, uh, due to, you know, to scientific work and scientific communication, we shifted the phrase to climate change because that's, that's more accurate. It isn't just about warming, you know, it's about disruption, et cetera. Natural gas is at the very beginning of that kind of name change as well. Um, Studies show that the phrase natural gas is misleading and leads people to think that that it's clean and it's natural and it's healthy, and it's not. It's actually really dangerous, and it really doesn't scientifically have any place in a clean energy platform.
1: All right, Jason McLean, we'll have to leave it there for today, but thank you so much for your time.
5: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Later today, the city of Maple Ridge is going to be hearing from government and community leaders, the development industry, as well as not-for-profit organizations. This is going to be the city's first housing affordability summit. And the keynote speaker is BC's housing minister, Ravi Kalon. And Ravi Kalon joins us on the line now. Good morning to you.
6: Good morning, Jill. Thanks for having me.
1: Well, thanks for being here. You mentioned you are the keynote speaker. So what are you going to be focusing on when it comes to these discussions and breakout sessions when it comes to housing?
6: Well, first off, kudos to Mayor Rumi for taking a leadership role in his community. It's, it's refreshing to see uh, his leadership uh, on moving this housing piece forward. We're going to be talking about what we've been talking about in communities throughout the province. We're going to be talking about uh, some of the actions that the province will be taking to uh, further advance the availability of housing, whether that's allowing up to four units on single-family lots, uh soon a uh, housing supply act will be announcing uh the firm in communities which uh will be putting housing targets on and as well other things such as you know building better cost certainty into projects and and getting projects approved faster i think those are the main things that We'll be talking about the certainly I'll be talking about, but I'm looking forward to hearing what uh, partners on the ground also are suggesting. Uh,
1: with a summit like this, uh, I mean, there are a lot of key partners, a lot of stakeholders that will be there and spending the day talking about those issues. But obviously more needs to be done other than talking about it. So what is the issue or what is holding up some of those things that you just said?
6: Well, the, the challenge we have is that it just takes way too long for decisions to be made on housing. Uh, I think that's to the core of the issue we're dealing with here. Uh, and so what we're encouraging local governments to do is bring your community on early, make your plan. And when the plan is made, don't relitigate decisions. Uh, you know, we get caught in making a decision and then having to make another decision and then have to make another decision at some point. Uh, we have to just say decisions have been made and we need to get going with housing. And, and that's certainly something I'll be stressing here. I've been stressing that in communities throughout the province. And so far, I've been getting a really positive response from many of the local government officials that I've uh, spoken to.
1: Uh, when you uh, became housing minister, your mandate letter uh, included part uh, well, well something that uh, just to what you just said there, as far as permitting, and it included working uh, towards getting a one-stop provincial permitting process, and also supporting those municipalities, streamlining the development approvals, and getting those done faster. Has there been any change, do you think, since you became minister?
6: Well, uh, it's been a busy six months, I have to say, but uh, we have uh, been focusing on uh, one key initiative in particular, which is we changed the legislation uh, around uh, community planning. And now the rules say that if a community has a community plan and somebody comes forward with a housing development and it fits within the community plan, that doesn't need to go back to council, that we don't need to have to relitigate that decision. Now, we've made it optional for governments, local governments, uh, and as a first step, I know around six or seven local governments have adopted that. My committee of Delta has adopted that, which is positive, which means that we're knocking off sometimes a year off of uh, the approval process to get projects approved. That's one step. But there's a whole host of things that are coming this fall. Uh, I'll be talking about some of those things this uh, this uh, earlier this morning.
1: And you, you talked about speeding it up as well. And we just saw an example of another project. And I know it's a very specific one. But the project proposal at 105 Kiefer in Vancouver. This is something that was denied twice by the Development Permit Board. It came back to the board yesterday. The same thing as 2017, but still no decision. What do you say to some Something like that where there is a lot that's been sitting there it's been a gravel parking lot for decades and now this is the third time that a proposal has come forward and there's still no decision
6: well this type of thing is is the challenge that we're trying to get away from which is uh you know not having a community plan in place uh and then not being able to follow up with the community plan after that and so what we're trying to do with uh, City of vancouver with all our partners is fundamentally say when you have a community plan, it should not need to go back to council where we relitigate decisions. Now, in, in the city of Vancouver's case, they haven't adopted the new rules. And so that's why they're in the situation that they're in, which is, uh, you know, having a project that uh, fits within the realm of what they had agreed to, uh, having the public weigh in again and, uh, again i haven't been able to follow the particulars around what happened at council but i would say to them to all uh, local governments is that uh, let's get the planning done in the in the beginning let's have an understanding of what's going to get built where it's going to get built and once we have that then it's it's full speed ahead because we are thousands and thousands of units behind, and that is putting huge pressure on families. And uh, my biggest concern, uh, besides people living in encampments and struggling, is uh, is the ability for young people to have housing available in
7: their communities.
1: Uh, the premier has said in the past as well, and that was referencing Vancouver and the Broadway line or the, the line going along with the, the new subway, that they need to approve faster and that if the city council isn't, and other city councils as well, that if they don't, the province will step in and the province will make sure it happens how heavy-handed do you think the province needs to be
6: well we we have said that we would step in and in, in certain cases and uh and certainly this fall with legislation we will be stepping in uh into uh, a realm that uh tradition, the province has stayed away from just because we're in such a crisis um and you know the broadway line is is a frustration of mine Uh, And I've said to local government officials there that if uh, the boring machines below ground are moving faster than the development above, well, we have a major problem here. And so uh, I know that uh, council uh, agreed with that position last time information became available to them. I understand now um, that another recommendation is coming to them. Uh, And I heard urge them strongly to get going with it. Uh, They have some of the strongest rental protections uh, that have been built anywhere in North America along the Broadway corridor, which is good. Uh, That should be there. But once you have that there, let's, let's get going.
1: And when you say the province is moving into a realm it has stayed away from, what do you mean by that?
6: Well, we are uh, already signaling that we're going to move single-family lots uh, up to uh, four units per lot uh, in large areas of the province. Uh, We have said that we're going to add greater density around uh, SkyTrain, around train stations, around uh, bus stations. And so that is a space that we're coming in as a province just to say, hey, no no more uh, individual lot decisions being made. We're going to be moving in a larger way. Because what we're doing right now uh, at the local level is just not meeting the needs of the public.
1: All right. Minister Kalon, thank you so much for your time this morning. Anytime, Jill. Stay safe. This is Mornings with Simi. It's time to check back in with Mornings with Simi contributor Scott Chance. Hello again. Hi, how's it going? So good. And I'm glad we're talking about this today because noise. We all have to deal with it and we all have different levels of how much we can tolerate.
8: Yeah, it's in the conversation right now because there's this noise survey going on and everybody has an opinion about, you know, what's too much, what where and when and how they should have to tolerate noise and such. I, I saw a post on a message board Just recently, because now that the weather's gotten good, everybody's going to the beach. And then, of course, people bring bring their Bluetooth speakers and other people get bothered. Does this happen to you? Have you been to the beach and experienced that? I saw a fight break out about this at the beach last week. Yeah. And this is exactly uh, what is happening. And people, you know, it's like they want you to turn it down. Well, I feel like I should have the right to play my Bluetooth speaker (laughs) here. There's a huge conversation happening here. uh, And I got in touch with uh, an ex expert on this. His name is Matt Jordan. He's a professor of media studies at Penn State University and he's written extensively about exactly what we are talking about here. He refers to this as the ethics of noise mm. which is an interesting term so i asked just by started by asking him just exactly what is that
7: the ethics of noise uh, or or i guess you could say the the ways in which we come to live with one another and our collective noise or our individual noise has a lot to do with the parameters that we set for what counts as unwanted sound the uh, the most simple definition of noise is just unwanted sound and so We can become conditioned to almost anything over time. We learn how to hear, one could argue, by just going through our daily lives. And the things that are signaled out for us as unwanted, those tend to be the things that we conceive of as being noise. So we learn to hear and we learn to evaluate things as being noise, basically by way of these kind of conversations we're always having as a culture about what's noisy, what's not, what's beyond the pale, you know, what's within the realm of reason, uh, time, place, who's being bothered, who's not bothered. So we're constantly having conversations about this and kind of creating ongoing norms as to what counts as that. And the ethics of it is just kind of learning what some of the trade-offs are as we develop those norms. I feel like this conversation
8: comes up probably every year kind of around this time. I literally just saw an article on a message board about how to tell other
7: people at the beach to turn their Bluetooth speakers off. That's a kind of a classic scenario, right? And I think my I've been interested in how we come to think of quietness as being acoustic comfort. And how much of our lives now we are conditioned to always be able to kind of create our own soundtrack right so the advertising that tells us we need quiet comfort noise cancellation headphones in order to kind of create our own soundtrack for the world that manages our sense of feeling etc but when everybody does that that becomes an ethical problem right this the question of the person at the beach they're just there trying to enjoy the beach maybe they actually want to hear the waves And somebody else is convinced that in order to fully enjoy that experience, they have to have their tunes with them. Uh, And so, you know, more and more what we see are people who are in their own little uh, acoustic bubble, their little acoustic cocoon, and kind of like it that way, um, and don't often think about how their sound may impact somebody else. It makes me think of,
8: Public transit, for example, 20 years ago, you would get on public transit and it wouldn't be uncommon to hear, oh, I met this person on the bus or I met this person on the train. But now, like you used the term cocoon, we've right. kind of just insulated ourselves, not not only from the noise, but just as a byproduct of that, you insulate yourselves from other people. And so in the name of like this peaceful community, we're kind of in in a sense
7: taking away from community. Is that right? Uh, that's 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 my perception of it like that the more that they're you know like it's a great ex- example of public transit right that nobody talks to each other randomly anymore right they they kind of when you put the earbuds in and people see them they know the rules are don't talk to me right but that, that that's uh, i want the i only want to hear this and so they, that's got an ethics to it as well right there's a there's a certain ethical position that uh, you could say it tells us that we should be listening to the cry of somebody else who's in pain, right? That we should be willing to hear our neighbors if they say something to us. But it once the norm gets pushed toward, oh, no, I have to have my own sound. I don't want to hear anything else. That's unreasonable. The more that I think we kind of fall on the on the bad side of that ethical equation, which is that we're closing ourselves off to the world of people, to the world of community, all in the name of kind of having this kind of quietness uh, as a state of being, I guess you could say. We have to practice opening ourselves to the experience of other people, right? So you get more out of life when you open your ears, right? When you When you experience the world that is out there, as opposed to kind of shutting the world out. So I think, you know, that's that's a position we all have to find. Uh, um, But I think framing unwanted sounds as only noise is something that we can avoid doing, right? That we have to say to ourselves, maybe the commercials that are convincing me to buy, you know, uh, noise cancellation headphones are missing something. And maybe I'm just falling prey to their framing of sound as being unreasonable, right? And so uh, I think we all have to negotiate that with the... Idea that the more we open ourselves up to the experience of other people and their sound, uh, the more we will uh, kind of get out of life.
8: Professor Matt Jordan, professor of media studies at Penn State University in Pennsylvania. Thank you so much for your time. Very interesting conversation. Thanks for having me. Extremely challenging. (laughs) Extremely. (laughs) Wow. Right?
1: Yeah. I, I don't agree with most of what he just said. Really? Well, no, no. Unwanted noise. Unwanted sound is noise. Noise Noise-canceling headphones have only made life better. For everybody involved, I disagree wholeheartedly with that. If you don't
8: like noise, if it bothers you... Cut it out of your life. Yeah, but I mean, but where do you draw the line, Jill? Then on on you know, I don't like the sound of of my coworkers. I don't <laughs> like the sound of the people that I'm you know walking down the street who may might want to ask me about directions or you know all of these little nuance things that help build community.
1: Sure, that seems a little different though. If you go back to the Bluetooth spe- speaker, and this was so my experience, it was people had their Bluetooth speaker cranking out music. They had drums that they were drumming along oh my gosh. to with. To okay. my friend and I (laughs) had to move because it ruined the experience for everybody in that area. We moved, but another person went and politely said to them, Hey, this is a little loud. This is a quiet beach it turned into a big fight. Someone sent up a drone that then hovered above them as they were all fighting. It was quite a thing. I mean, that was an extreme. But that's antisocial behavior. If everyone did that, it would be ruined for
8: everybody. And I think, uh, yeah, and I think the the question here is where where we find that line, you know? And, like, you make the point that somebody went over and politely asked them, and I think, you know, that's a social grace that hopefully we learn through, uh, you know, communicating with each other, which, I don't know, I guess, like, I'm trying to turn the mirror on myself. (laughs) As soon as I leave the office here every morning, the first thing I do is put in earbuds. Right. So I can just zone out Mm -hmm. everything that's going on around me. And now I'm realizing that, you know, maybe maybe there's some things there that I shouldn't necessarily be trying to zone out.
1: Maybe. I mean, yeah, you want to hear if somebody's coming up behind you and is going to Punch you in the face or something, <laughs> sure, but if... do I need to hear all the busy noise around me? No,
8: not necessarily. yeah, I also worry that maybe i 'm just desensitizing myself to to all of the sound, you know, but um, I guess it 's one of those things that we just have to continue to work out you know as a, as a society, yes, yeah, so what about leaf blowers? <laughs> Yeah, I I mean I have a leaf blower, <laughs> so guilty again. Guilty is true. I like having a, a leafless lawn.
1: Sure, sure. There you go. Maybe, but what if what if your neighbors came over to you and said, you know,
8: Scott, that's really loud. Could you stop doing that? I think that I would probably say, uh, what if is there a time that I can do it that would be less interfering with you guys and maybe you know I'll block out an hour on a Saturday, maybe when people aren't sleeping or having company over in their backyard. I don't know. I think we need to find a way to figure this stuff out.